namo tassa pakawato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa pakawato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa pakawato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasam so this is the uposatha day which in buddhist countries is like a Sabbath day, a Sunday, a day where uh, many people go to the monasteries in Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, Cambodia, Laos, and Canada, England, Australia. And it's a day that's um, marked in the calendar around the movement of the moon, the phases of the moon. And it's a time where People try to put away the busyness of life, try to keep, quite often in Thailand, people will go in the monastery early in the morning, prepare food, offer the dana, and then just meditate at the monastery all day. And then uh, in Wapapong, the monasteries there, they have a, an all-night vigil. And it's customary for villagers to take the eight precepts. Quite often they wear white and teachers will be available, but mostly it'll be a, a Dharma talk in the evening, maybe a couple of talks, and people just quietly consider their spiritual life and, and get away from family complexities and just take in the, the quietness of the sanctuary and deepen their own practice of samadhi. So it's quite a, a nice uh, cultural gathering, say, in Rajan Chah. These monasteries are in northeast Thailand. It's kind of, kind of like the Bible Belt of Forest Buddhism, where you have very, very serious practitioners as, as monastics and, and very dedicated uh, lay people dedicated to the practice. And it's quite inspiring to see their, their diligence, their commitment to precepts and moral principles, their generosity in supporting the monastery. If they're members of their families going forth into the order for periods of time, coming back to family life. The um, schools inviting uh, monks to, to teach and to offer blessings. And if there's a big occasion at Wapapong, a whole military and a battalion, a group of soldiers will come and clean the place up. It's so integrated into, into Northeast Thailand, which is extraordinary, really. So we have a smaller version of that, and that's what we try to do in these these uh, observance days, is create a sense of uh, reminding ourselves of our aspiration and reminding ourselves of our, uh, our uh, ethical commitment and our commitment in, in this particular place to a, a communal way of living, living the Dhamma. So the eight precepts are emblematic of that and the relationship to the senior monk, an abbot, uh, our own rules that we as monastics keep. And then outside of that, perhaps not written down so much, is just a sense of a communal agreements around how we um, distribute the food or how we do the uh, cleanup afterwards or who, who's in charge of work project and what chemical and and so on. So there's a kind of communal 
sensitivity that is sometimes not so well defined, but you can you get to know it. And that is our vehicle. That's what we travel in, and that's what we use to uh, watch our own, to develop our own practice. So we're very fortunate to have. Really, it's quite a clear structure. We're quite quite fortunate that way, and we just try to get a steady uh, practice going. Monasticism is a necessary, necessary part of, of the Buddhist path, uh, but obviously it's something that has worked for some people over the ages, and we are an extension of that. As you all have heard again and again and again, I'm making a desk. <laughs> How many more times I hear about my desk, but I get a lot of insight from learning about anything, if, I, if I'm making anything, I'm, because I, I like to talk about the Dhamma, just learning about anything is, is learning. So whether it's joinery or, or meditation, learning is learning. And I, and I noticed today that I, you know, this past week I have a, a bit of flow now in working with the uh, power tools, shaping wood, measuring, finishing, understanding how joints come together, how wood moves, and so many other things which make makes the project that I'm doing now much more rewarding. Um, much more, I get much more sense of uh, refinement and, and accuracy because I understand what I'm doing to some extent. It's still very rudimentary, but there is a, there's a kind of body of understanding, a body of knowledge which allows me to think laterally about which tools to use and how can adjust mistakes by using this tool or that method and and that's quite uh, quite rewarding quite quite nice uh, and that that sense of competence is uh, makes it makes it both more interesting more enjoyable but also makes it more accurate more ability to pay attention to detail because one understands how detail comes about how refinement comes about and, and in the same way I think uh, in developing this Buddhist path, when we first started, you know, there was a lot of floundering around. What is it, what this is about? And how do I do this? How do I meditate? And so many other you know, problems and doubts and questions. And then we have other traditions teaching about spirituality. And so to kind of enjoy this work and find it meaningful and... Um, Interesting, rather than just the uh, initial grunt and bear with it kind of practices that we did. Because I think of my first years of meditation where my body was not flexible. I didn't understand the difference between letting go and repressing my overly driven, I'm going to get to enlightenment yesterday kind of mind and all those difficulties that one encounters when one begins the path. Now, they're very they're very troublesome, very, very discouraging, actually, and, and, and the practice isn't much fun or much interest because there's a kind of, there's a lot of wrong view, a lot of lack of understanding, uh, a lack of skill. So developing skill and developing an understanding of skill and understanding how skill plugs into the Buddhist practice is very, very important. And that's not just done at an intellectual level. It's not just you kind of have a abstract idea about how to do this. You know how to do it. Just like when I when I started to 
play around with the power tools and making wood joints and so on. And I read some books and some people told me things, but that was very helpful. But just using the tools and then understanding what's too big and what's too small and how do you make a deep cut and how do you make a shallow cut and how does it fit and how does it not fit, that's very practical. It's not abstract. So the abstract helps, the knowledge helps, uh, and then you apply it, and then you see cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, and then after a while you have skill, don't you? You have competence, and that competence then gives you quite a, a nice lift. But it's not egotistical. You know, it's not like I'm a great carpenter. It's more like, yeah, this can be done. Uh, one can shape wood, and one can make joints. Same with the mind. The uh, project that we are engaged in is, is and I like to think as a, as a project, harkens back to the, the Buddha's own project. And so I think that's important for everyone to consider. Like, what is your project? And how does that mesh with the Buddhist project? Is that, are you, are you in a, kind of on the same wavelength? And as we know, the Buddha's inspiration comes from a kind of via negativa, it comes from a, a negative response or a, a response to life's difficulties, which impels him to look for something beyond life's difficulties. And his aspiration is not simply a reorientation of his psychology or simply developing worldly skills where he is more competent in business or making furniture. It's, it's much, much more profound than that, obviously, much deeper than that. And it goes about as deep as you can go, because he contemplates, well, there is old age sickness and death, birth and death. They are given. If you have birth, you have death. Is there something that is not bound by birth and death? And that's about as profound a project as I could imagine. I could imagine anything more profound. So again, it's not just like the Buddha was some ill-adjusted, wealthy person whose family had power and he was a spoiled brat and then at some age he decided that he needed therapy <laughs> and you know so he became a, a, a better adjusted king but rather it was a truly uh, spiritual and, and deep deep you know, inquiry into the very meaning of existence and so his aspiration is that there must be something beyond birth and death. And that comes very much from Indian culture at the time, and still it is that in Indian culture the idea of the unconditioned or the uncreated or the deathless was commonplace. You know, liberation, uh, enlightenment, these were common in, in Indian spirituality and, and still are. And he, you know, he sees that they're from his culture or from his own background, whatever, he sees that there, there, that must be a possibility, and that's his project. That's his search, is the realization of the unconditioned, of the deathless. And the search is quite arduous, as you know, and uh, he makes a lot of mistakes. does ascetic practices for many years, very self-harming kind of practices, and gets out of that. does various kinds of meditative practices which have which have results, but limited results. And then finally he sees all those cul-de-sacs and 
kind of goes his own way and realizes enlightenment. And that's his work. That's how he performed or he he took on his own project. And from that realization he taught. So does that project fit in with your project? Is that really what your aspiration is about? Because I think, for me at least, getting a sense of that is important for understanding, well, how did he teach or, or why did he teach what he taught? And putting it in that context has always helped me to see, well, he taught because of that realization and that aspiration, that project as it is. And this is the way he taught to realize that. So his realization is one that is available to all of us. That's very inspiring. It wasn't, it's not something esoteric that he kept secret. And he said it is possible, and this is what you have to do. So that takes faith. That takes a certain amount of faith in both the whole idea of enlightenment, the whole aspiration to something which is transcendent, shall we say, that it's possible, that there is that kind of a goal that is possible, that someone did it, that we can do it. That's, that would be an aspect of Buddhist faith. That, and that aspect of faith isn't like believing in something, like, like a doctrine. You have to believe in something. It's more like having, seeing, believing in oneself that there is this potential, that there is this possibility. So that's how I define a project for myself. And then the path that he lays out comes from his realization and then his experimentation. Well, how am I going to explain this? How am I going to show people how to do this? And, and he's very pragmatic. It's not, doesn't lay out an abstract philosophy. He says, you get down to the work. This is the work. This is how you do it. And of course, as we all know, he has the genius to emphasize suffering. He emphasizes suffering rather than the enlightenment. The enlightenment is there as a, as a background, as a realization, but the pathway, he suggests, is to understand your own suffering. And that is just brilliant, because we all want to get out of suffering. This is actually genius. And then, of course, his definition of suffering is very profound. Again, it's not just psychological, psychological maladjustment. Yes, more more deep than that, but all our maladjustments and all our quirks and angers and fears are things that we use to understand and deepen our skills so that we have the equipment and we have the energy and we have the uh, know-how of the path and how to do it. In meditation itself, you know, there are certain things that we have to understand and then practice in order to have the right tools for profound meditation. So, like in using hand tools, if you have a, as you know, if you have a, a chisel or a hand plane, you need to make it really sharp, razor sharp, and then you get a, a really nice, nice job, a nice cut. Same with your mind. If your mind is uh, dull and sleepy, you have to figure out how to sharpen your mind. And that's one of the skills that you need to hone uh, and develop. And just know, anytime there is dullness in your meditation, you know exactly what to do. So the dullness isn't just something episodic that you survive, or that is just dealt with with massive amounts of caffeine, <laughs> but rather 
that very difficult piece of wood or you know that very difficult mind state is something that you first of all you ask someone you read about it and then you try stuff until you know when dullness arises exactly what to do and it might be um, you're so exhausted you need to sleep it might be it's just that time of day when you're always dull and you need to put more focus in or you need to change your posture or a combination of different things but you practice you understand the hindrance and then from then on you know how to deal with the hindrance you could see that skill comes from struggling with with dullness and that's a very common hindrance in meditation very very common and can become chronic you see people who have been meditating a long time and sometimes their voice will come and wake up and things like that and, and you see they haven't they haven't uh, developed a skill around that and how do you how do you develop a skill well you just have a difficult piece of wood or a difficult joint and you you struggle with it but you keep you keep applying your mind to the problem to understand the problem to understand the energy systems of your of your consciousness of mind body, uh, and you understand how it arises, like dullness. When does it come into the mind? What does it do to the body? Where does your mind go? How to energize the body? How to use your posture? How to bring up imagery? All kinds of things. And if you do that, then sleepiness isn't just some kind of horrible experience, but rather you know it. You're adept at that particular aspect in meditation. Vice versa, if you have, like restlessness is a very common hindrance in, in, in meditation. And, that, and I was kind of equating that to locking down all the pieces of them. I was making a, a mortise joint through a leg for a table, which is two and a quarter inches deep. It was quite difficult to do. You can do it by hand. I was trying to use machinery. And the machiner I was using was a drill press. And a, but anyway, I had about five or six screwed things I had to tighten. And if I didn't get it tightened, the thing would move. And I'd tighten five and forget the sixth one. And I go, oh, I lost a lot of pieces of wood there. <laughs> but it was interesting just watching. Well, this takes a lot of attention. I really have to learn about this. I have to really watch and observe and and be careful and not rush it. And how does this work? And why is it off? And constantly applying attention in that way. Eventually, uh, I mean, I've got a long way to go, but I understood at least the principles and I understood how it's possible and I got better at it. The same way the restlessness, your mind, you just have to learn how to tie your mind down to the present moment. And with restlessness, it's different than dullness. Dullness just is kind of gaga land, isn't it? Sort of porridge mind. Don't quite know if you were meditating or not. The bell rang and you think, oh, was that, a, that was a nice short meditation. <laughs> You're asleep. But, but like restlessness, it's like it's endless. Like the sittings are just so long. And you look at the clock and, oh, God, there's 40 minutes left. And each time you look at the clock, it seems it's longer and longer. And you look around and, and you, you get a lot of pain when you're restless. Your body's uncomfortable, so you fidget. And, and pain quite often makes you restless. 
oh, and then you look at the clock again, and then you think, oh, just get up and then leave, and you look at others, and it's like, the mind just can't settle, it picks up a worry, it starts to, starts to plan and organize, and then, and that, that's a different kind of energy than the dull mind, isn't it? It's engaging. The energies are quite different. So again, okay, you you label it, call it what it is, and then figure out, all right, how do I keep the mind in the present moment? How do I not just look at the clock all the time? How do I develop a sense of ease with bodily pain and bodily discomfort and, and, and so on? And, and again, you work with it. You just keep, keep figuring out. And you'll see that that pattern comes again and again and again. Uh, in different ways, but it's, it's similar. You see it, and after a while, you figure, oh yeah, you have to make less effort, you have to relax in the body, you have to have peace all day. It's okay all day. I got all day, and you, you figure it out. You figure out how to do it, so that whenever that hindrance comes up, you know, you know, oh yeah, there's there's that one, but you know it, and you've got this confidence now, right? And you've got this uh, skill base. So when these hindrances come up. They don't obsess you. You get through them much, much easier, much, much quicker. And the whole meditation becomes much more interesting now because you're no longer just dealing with the hindrances. You're able to see them fairly clearly and you know how to work with them fairly quickly. And then the mind settles much more easily. And and it's more interesting, isn't it? It's much, much more interesting. But if one doesn't go through that, um, the willingness to learn from something then you'll always get it, it'll always come back, you know, just trying to get rid of it or, or distracting, whatever. So the idea of the the first noble truth is to make things conscious. You really bring out the feeling that, oh, this is, this is, I'm, I'm really sleepy now. I mean, make that conscious what's going on or, or I really, I'm really restless. I don't want to sit. I don't really want to sit. I don't want to be here now. Make that conscious rather than, no, I have to, I have to try harder. Make conscious actually what's going on in your mind. And if you make it conscious, then, then you're aware. You're no longer the subject. You're not, a, as we chant, there's no longer identification with the mood of the mind. No? And that's one of the basic skills that we're always, always engaged uh, encouraging is the non-identification with the mind-body experience, the observation of the mind-body experience, the awareness of the mind-body experience. Not the denial or dismissal of it, but the the awareness of it as an object rather than being the subject. And, and that's one of the uh, refreshing, encouraging aspects of doing this work. Because when, when, when you see memory as, as not you, so if you have a resentful memory, it's not just a memory. Or you have a sexual fantasy, it's just a memory. Or you have some... Uh, whatever. You just you see it as an object. It's so refreshing to know that's not me, it's not permanent, it's not mine. It's just stuff coming through. And that makes the, the whole meditative experience much more uh, enjoyable, shall I say, or rewarding, or, or uh, interesting, much more interesting. But these are basic things to meditation practice, but they are they're they're profound because those energies, those types of energies come up again and again and again. And knowing knowing them inside out has a lovely effect both in the immediate meditation but also in your self confidence. And you feel, yeah, I know I know how to do this work. I know I know how to apply my mind. I know how to apply my mind to that. So whatever in your meditation 
really confuses you or, or where you feel a lot of uh, self-doubt or uh, some kind of a lack or whatever, make that conscious. Let that, let that, be, let that be your teacher. Uh, you know, really, really make it conscious. I don't, I don't know how to do this. So what do, what do I not know how to do? And bring it up. So you're not just avoiding things or, or trying to suppress things with willful effort, get rid of things by watching the breath or whatever, but you're actually conscious of, of what you're doing. And then when you're fully conscious, then you try stuff out. And when you try stuff out, you think, well, that didn't work. Try something else. Now that's effective, and you have an intuition and a sensitivity, just like in, in working with wood. You know, you, you kind of try this, you try that, and all of a sudden you get a feeling for it. Like I was using a, a small planer to to plane off some end grain, which I'm not very good at, and I really sharpened up the plane really, really well, and then and all of a sudden my hand was doing it, it was doing it right, shaving off little bits, not splintering anything. It was a lovely feeling, but it took quite a lot to get there. It just took perseverance, attention, how does it work, how does my hand feel, oh, there, yeah, braids, and so on. So it's the same in meditation. You, you have you have something which uh, makes meditation difficult or whatever, and you okay. How am I going to work this? So the, the the hindrance is always the teacher, isn't it? The difficulty is always what develops the skill. That's the only way it could be. Rather than think if I didn't have this difficulty, then I could meditate. That's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. So that, this, I think, is really just to encourage you to kind of like not be discouraged by difficulties rather than to, to see the difficulties as being inherent in, in a development of skill. Just the, like the aspects around the second noble truth that the cause of suffering is becoming or repressing or distraction. Bhava, vibhava and kama tanha, the types of craving. Well, you can see that in, in meditation. Like if I'm working on this desk, and I'm trying to get it finished, it's a disaster. I just mess stuff up and I have to do it again. Because I'm, I'm not really with the work, I'm with the result. And that's a basic lesson we all learn from you know, doing anything. So one of the practices we try to do in the monastery is to do things well for the sake of doing them well, rather than for the sake of getting them finished. And that doesn't mean you have to do things slowly. It doesn't mean like if, you, if you're cooking in the kitchen and you want to do things well and you do it really slowly and you get the meal ready for 4 p.m., that's not going to work. We're not going to be happy with that. But rather, you, you can do it quickly, but you do it for the sake of doing it. And that whole becoming mind, getting things finished, getting them done, or reaching some result that you want, that's insidious. It's so bhavatana, so powerful. So in our ordinariness here, whether it's cleaning the house or... or mowing the lawns or, or doing furniture or digging a ditch. It's always this, this sense of doing things well and doing, doing them for the sake of doing them. Getting past that, that worldly, goal-oriented, deadline kind of mindset, uh, which is quite, quite powerful. And it seems like you're going to get it done more quickly, but usually you don't. Usually you mess up a bit. And this sense of like, doing something thoroughly and calmly and vigorously actually has a very good effect on the mind. You know, it's, it's a kind of samadhi, isn't it? It's a very good effect on the mind. So as we're doing manual work or whatever we're doing, we're always observing the mind, aren't we? It's always part of the project of developing wholesome attitudes in, in what we do. And 
like doing something well, even though it might be trivial uh, and seemingly unimportant, is, is actually very rewarding and makes for a beautiful monastery. That's nice too, but that's secondary. And then if we, if we establish those attitudes in the ordinary sort of life, then also we can see what are our attitudes in the meditation. Is, is there this constant sense of becoming something? trying to figure something out, trying to get some kind of insight, trying to reach some state of mind that we had last year, trying to attain to something that we've read about. Is this this kind of movement away from the present moment to get some preconceived thing in the future? That won't work, because it's not mindful. If I'm not mindful of craving, how can I be free from craving? And so making conscious what you're doing, doing it for the sake of doing it. And that, that's something that we can learn all the time. And of course, the corollary of, of becoming is then trying to get rid of. So then our meditations get infected by not wanting sleepiness, not wanting dullness, not wanting restlessness, not wanting the planning mind. And so we have a goal that we're trying to grasp, and then we have the present moment which we're trying to get rid of, and the thing's a disaster. It doesn't work. can't work, because it's, it's all bound with self, with craving, with time, becoming, doesn't work. Whereas making conscious something in the present moment, sure, we have a goal. Sure, we want to be peaceful. We want to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion. We want to realize what the Buddha realized. So that, that goal is there as a kind of background. But in the present moment, we have to stay in the present moment. Because it's in the present moment where there's the realization. So then seeing the, the mind moving, grasping towards some... Uh, hopeful event yeah, or hopeful experience. Just knowing that and becoming conscious of that settles your mind into the present moment. And then that prevents the, the tendency then to repress things, to get rid of them. So as long as there is becoming, there's also non-becoming, getting rid of. But making something fully conscious is neither becoming nor getting rid of. It's just simply pure awareness. And from that, from that you see what prevents that and you keep settling into the moment. And the meditation gets more interesting, more, more, more still and more centered. And this is a training. You know, it's a training that few people find it easy. Some, you get some adepts who are very skilled, but most people find it difficult to train the mind. But if you take it on this way, it's, it's interesting. It's not just self-flagellation or, as Ajahn Smith used to say, it's like brain surgery without anesthesia. <laughs> But rather, it's an interesting project. How do I, how do I stay in the present moment? If you bring interest into it and and curiosity, so the same like doing joinery. If I just feel frustrated, I can't do this. And but how do I do it? Oh yeah, I messed up that piece of wood. But how do I do this? And that that sense of interest in your own mind is is a kind of it's a kind of loving attitude. Love maybe too strong a word, but it's a kind of uh, affectionate it's it's a it's a caring attitude isn't it you know like you're really caring for your being even though it it stinks <laughs> you can't caring for for what the mind is producing right now you're not just kind of rejecting it and just trying to get rid of it and that caring attitude is what what we mean by metta metta and karuna that kind of uh, allowing this moment to be as it is and then working with it and that heart attitude is very important because we can be very willful and very, very uh, goal-oriented. And, and, and that it, it, you can do that. With, you can use willpower for a while, but after, 
you just get you get you dry up. You get exhausted because there's no heart. No heart. Willpower is good if you use it well, uh, but willpower not to become more just like focus to do the work, but to keep the heart. You can get the heart into it, the sense of openness and caring for a long time. You can really do a lot of formal practice. Willful things, you can uh, you go for a while and then you just dry up and hate it. So we have heart, and and so interest. Dhamma-vijaya, caring for something, in investigating it, as a scientist would, or someone interested, then you get these different skills, then becoming stronger and stronger, and then the, and the spiritual life gets increasingly interesting, more and more interesting. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection. <laughs> Sadhu, 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 sadhu.